Let's open our Bibles to the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Romans and the 11th chapter. Romans chapter 11. I have no idea how far we'll get this morning, but uh, I'll read the outside limits of where we'll get by reading the first six verses. Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away His people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away His people, which He foreknew. Wot ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it by grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Amen and amen. Romans chapter 11. Outside the book of Revelation, Romans chapter 11 is the most difficult chapter in the New Testament without a close companion. It requires great dividing of Scripture to arrive at the proper antecedents for pronouns, to understand why you can be cast away in one verse and not cast away in another, why you can say that you can't fall, but you do fall, and which Israel is under consideration in this verse versus what Israel is under consideration in that verse. And so I hope that you'll be patient, because I'm going to give you time to learn this chapter. We're going to go through it slowly. I want to start by making a short review, because it's been two weeks since we were in Romans, to remember where we've been. Because if you don't remember where we've been, you might not understand some of the things the Apostle says in the 11th chapter. Let's turn back and look at chapter 9. In verses 1 through 5, the Apostle introduces very carefully, by some chosen words of kindness, exalting the nation of Israel for blessings that God had given them as His chosen people. We went through that in detail a long time ago. But in verse 6, he said in the second half of the verse, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And so now we know, and we knew then when we got to this verse, that the apostle was introducing a doctrine that was near sacrilege to a Jew. Because the Jews assumed that by their national and natural pedigree, they were God's children. But the apostle is going to take up in verses 6 through 8 and explain, not everyone that belonged to Abraham was his child. Though he had eight sons, 
Only one was the child of promise, and thus the Son of God. And then he looked at Isaac and Rebekah's twins, Jacob and Esau, and showed another example. But the key here is that sixth verse. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. It is hard for us to appreciate the value or the terror or the novelty of such an idea as Romans chapter 9 and verse 6. Because we know that for 2,000 years God has given the gospel and He has called the Gentiles His people. We don't appreciate it. If we had been born a Jew living in Paul's time and in the city of Rome and a member of the church at Rome and there were Jews, members of that church, it'd be hard to take. Because for 1,500 years they were bred, they were trained, they assumed that because they were Israelites, They were God's children. The rest of the world were Gentile goyim cattle and not God's people, other than maybe a few exceptions that God brought in. And of course, those exceptions had better have some minor surgery to look like us, or they're not even going to get to heaven. Very serious. And the apostle set the stage very gently in those first five verses by just lifting up all the advantages that the Jews had, and then makes that statement in verse 6. He declares the doctrine of election and reprobation in Israel. And then he's going to take a long time developing it, and he's going to come back to it in Romans chapter 11 and explain it again. Usually, when you are trying to show someone the doctrine of election in the Bible, you take them to Romans chapter 9. But I hope by the time we get done with Romans chapter 11, you'll feel that it is at least a peer of Romans chapter 9 of stating election and reprobation of some. And it says a whole lot more than that as well. So they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. That has been stated. And it's going to be restated in chapter 11. From verses 7 down through 13, and I've already mentioned this, he illustrates it from the lives of the patriarchs. I love how the apostle develops his argument. He gently eases into the subject. They all knew Ishmael wasn't a child of God. They all knew the sons of Keturah were not children of God. But he reminded them in a way that would be palatable that only one of eight... It was their father Isaac. They knew they were from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew they were not from Abraham, Ishmael, and anyone else. And then he shows among the two twins, not the Edomites, oh no, not the enemy of Israel, but Jacob was the one that God loved. And they knew that. They knew that from the Old Testament Scriptures. So he's easing into it. But then he begins to get more particular as he gets closer and closer to chapter 11, where he will be very plain. In chapter 11. You know, he said in the end of chapter 10 that Isaiah was very bold. Well, he'll be bolder yet in chapter 11 than even Isaiah. In this ninth chapter, verses 14, what shall we say then? How many times in chapters 9, 10, 11 does the apostle say, what shall we say then? I say then. What then? Because he's asking rhetorical questions that he knows should pop up in the mind of the reader or the listener. And he's going to go ahead and head those questions off by answering them. But in verses 14 through 24, the doctrine is proved from theology. He states it in verse 6, 
after warmly setting the stage in verses 1 through 5, declares it, illustrates it, then proves it from theology. This is God that we're dealing with. He shows mercy to whom He will show mercy. Whom He will, He hardeneth. It is not of Him that willeth, nor of Him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. He is the potter, we are the clay. He makes vessels of honor, He makes vessels of dishonor. He makes vessels of mercy, He makes vessels of wrath. And then he he ends in verse 24 by saying, Even us are the vessels of mercy, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. There the doctrine is stated again. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. They are not all God's elect Jews that are Jews, because it is of the Jews that he made vessels of mercy, and it is of the Gentiles that he did so. Then in verses 25 through 29, he quotes four scriptures from the Old Testament, proving that God had an election within the nation. They shouldn't be so so surprised at his doctrine that he's declaring, illustrating, proving, and now quoting scripture to back up. Then in verses 30 through 33, he explains that there is a problem when it comes to the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, having been on earth, now ascended to heaven, was a stumbling block. Why would the Jews stumble over their own Messiah? If anyone should have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ of God, the anointed one of God, it should have been the Jews. Instead, it was the Gentiles that by nature didn't even know about Jehovah, let alone Jehovah's Son. And so the apostle describes that in verses 30 through 33, that there is a problem when it comes to subjective, outward, personal justification. That the Gentiles believe on the finished work of Christ, but the Jews will not. They stumble over Him. You'll need some of these words. You can't read Romans chapter 11. It'd be like reading a 16-chapter book. How many of you want to take chemistry or algebra or accounting, and start with chapter 11. It's hard enough reading the first 10 than doing chapter 11. Because 11 is going to be harder than the first 10. And so we've got to review our, we've got to review and see what has been said already. And so he is saying here in verses 30 through 33 that Israel, which is following after righteousness outwardly, will not submit to the righteousness which is By faith, because they stumble at that stumbling stone. And then he quotes in verse 33 that God had purpose to lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Oh, if Paul could only get some of those elect Jews to believe on him, they wouldn't be ashamed. They would be justified with the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 9. I never want you to forget it. I don't want to preach it again unless the Lord blesses me to live to 100 and I only want to live to 70. You say, why would you say that? Well, wait till the second service. And it's not because I have some announcement to give you. Only if I live long enough will we be back in Romans and I want you to remember it. It's it's, It's all going to be in writing for you, but I just love the way that the apostle developed it so gently because it was a pretty... Severe doctrine that he was presenting. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 are his desire for the conversion of elect Israel. 
We explain why that has to be elect Israel when we read the word Israel in the first verse, that the apostle would not be desiring nor praying to God for non-elect Israel. He wouldn't be praying for those that were not Israel. He wouldn't be praying for those that were Jews but were not of the Jews. He wouldn't be praying for vessels of wrath. He'd be praying for vessels of mercy. And he goes to explain how that they are convinced that they ought to keep trying to establish their own righteousness by the works of the law. And we've been through that declaration. It's his desire for the conversion of elect Israel. Verse 5 states how you were justified under Moses. Verses 6 through 9 show how you can claim justification and know that you are in the righteousness of God and pleasing in His sight and fully accepted before Him by faith. Then, in verses 10 through 13, the universal applicability of the gospel and the righteousness of faith is stated. There's no difference. It says in verse 12, between the Jew and the Greek, the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. And we have stated in 9, 11, and 13 the same thing, that if you'll believe in your heart, and if you will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the evidence of a work of God in you and His election prior to that work in you. And that is your claim, that is your confidence, that is your assurance, that righteousness has been counted to you in the sight of God. Like it was counted to Abraham when he believed God's promise that his seed would be as the stars of heaven. This is not how you get born again, because Romans 10 isn't teaching how to get born again. This is not how you get elected, because Romans 10 is not teaching how you get elected. Oh, trust me. Everyone wants to believe that election is based on your choice. That if you choose God, God saw before the world began that you would choose Him, and therefore He elected you based on your choice, so it's really your election of Him, and you have reserved yourself a place in heaven, rather than Him reserving you for Him. And the difference is dramatic, and they'll find the word foreknew in Romans chapter 11 and verse 2, and off they go with foreknowledge. But we've already been there So we shouldn't have to spend too much time because Romans chapter 8 said, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And we find that that was in verse 29, but it said in verse 28, that is the verse that comes before verse 29, To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Foreknowledge and foreknowing people is based on God's purpose toward them. Purpose drives foreknowledge. Foreknowledge does not drive purpose. And the foreknowledge in Romans 8 is of people. For whom he did foreknow. It is not for what he did foreknow. It is not that he foresaw what sinners would do to please him and thus save them. It's because he chose to know them with an affectionate and special relationship as his elect people. And he engraved them on the palms of his hands, and wrote their names in the book of life. That was all taught in Romans chapter 9. That's a vessel of honor versus a vessel of dishonor. That's a vessel of mercy versus a vessel that is not of mercy. That is God willing to show mercy and compassion. And that is God willing to harden others. Verses 14 through and 15 explain to us that without preachers being called by God and sent by other preachers, How will God's elect hear? And if they don't hear, how can they possibly believe? And if they don't believe yet because they haven't heard, because there aren't preachers, how shall they call on Him since calling on Him 
is the basis for believing that you're justified. Then the apostle takes it a step further and comes down a little closer to the Jews and he asks in verse 16, he states in verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Why haven't these elect Jews obeyed the gospel? Why haven't these elect Jews obeyed the gospel? He's building toward chapter 11. He repeats in verse 17 what he has stated in 14 and 15, that you've got to have preachers preaching the word of God in order to draw forth faith, which is the evidence of one being justified. Then he asks again in 18, Have they not heard? Yes, verily. The apostles took the message of the gospel into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world the Jews had heard. Why were elect Jews not believing? And Paul says in verse 19, quoting Moses, Did not Israel know that he was going to provoke them to jealousy by he was going to provoke the Jews to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you? See, these verses are going to come back into play because he's going to talk about jealousy in verse eleven of chapter eleven. And you should remember ten nineteen. That there was a prophecy made fifteen hundred BC where Moses said that God was going to anger and provoke to jealousy the nation of Israel by converting our ancestors, the Gentiles. And, and we, we know, we looked at some of the verses in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 28, and other places where we saw that take place. And then he quotes Isaiah in verses 20 and 21 by pointing out that the Gentiles, though they weren't seeking God, God went after them. Well, now, how can you have a people going after God externally and not finding Him, and a people that weren't going after God finding Him because He revealed Himself to them? The, the difference is dramatic. The difference is great. And the difference is something we ought to be very thankful for as we come to Romans chapter 11. And the apostle says, I say then, what is the situation going on with Israel and the situation going on with Gentiles? How does it all make sense? Humility and fear are going to be what we should bring out of this chapter when we're done with it. I, I want to show you in this chapter ahead of time just a few little tidbits to hopefully stir your interest. Look in verse 18. It says, Boast not against the branches. Those are the Jewish branches that have been cut off. Don't you boast against them. They have more right to be in that tree than you do. The last part of verse 20. Be not high-minded, but fear. This is what we want to get out of 11. Be not high-minded, but fear. Paul, as the apostle of the Gentiles, is going to remind us that we are under great blessings called the goodness of God. But if we don't continue in that goodness, how do you continue in the goodness of God? You are thankful for it. Better yet, you give thanks for it. Amen. You praise Him. You serve Him. You live for Him. You exalt His church. You protect His church. You pray for the peace of Jerusalem right here. You use the joint that God made you and the part that God made you to make this church what it should be in the sight of God rather than neglecting any of the grace of God spent on you. Right. You continue in His goodness. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. It's continually conforming our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Gentiles could be cut off again. Right. 
They weren't there to begin with because they were part of a wild olive tree. We'll get to that olive tree in time. But I want you to notice what we should pull out of this chapter. I want you to remember that in this chapter we have the clearest case made of unconverted elect. Arminians don't like this passage, and so what they've done with Romans chapter 11 is turn it into a dispensational free-for-all. You can just go in here and come up with about anything you want to. And that is that there is going to be, any time now, a mass conversion of the Jews. They're just all going to start to love Jesus, even though they've hated Him for 2,000 years. And we're going to deal with that. It says in verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. Well, what do you do if you've never divided the word of God in your life? If you've never divided the word salvation, and you've never divided the word Israel, and you get to Romans eleven twenty-six, and you read, and so all Israel shall be saved. Is that this generation of Israelites? Is it the Israelites from the 1700s? Is it the Israelites that are living under the so-called Antichrist? That they're Antichrist. Is it, or is it all of them? We've got to make some division. That's why I told you it is a tricky chapter in that it requires us to rightly divide the word of truth to arrive at the sense of God's word. And Lord, help us do that. Oh, they run, they run wild with that. I just got to, we're going to see some of this before I even finish today. Because I want you not, I don't want anybody to be worried and I want you to read this chapter every week. I hope you read this chapter once every two days. I want you to get familiar with it so when I talk about it, you'll remember, yep, it's down there in verse 15 that they were cast away, but in verse 2 it says they weren't cast away. I just want you to have those things running through your mind because you're familiar with the chapter. You know, there's so many Jewish conversion heresies that come out of this chapter, and there are some difficult connections in it, but God helping us. Look at how it ends. Look at how this chapter ends. Verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. There is something in Romans 1 through 11. There is something in Romans 9 through 11. And there is something in Romans 11 that should get our attention. Because this is what an inspired apostle by the Holy Spirit says about the ground covered in Romans 1 through 11. Oh, hear it. Oh, the depth, and it is deep. Oh, the depth of the riches, not the punishments, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There are certain things we're not going to say we can't understand that verse. We're going to say we understand the verse. It's hard for us to comprehend the choice of God in the matter. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ taught in Matthew chapter 11, because it seemed good in his sight. He couldn't explain it. It was past searching out as the God-man. He said, because it seemed good in thy sight. Another exclamation point, there's two of them in that 33rd verse. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who is able to figure out what we're about to to finalize here by getting through chapter 11? Or who hath been his counselor? Who's ever told the Lord how it ought to be done? Listen, he's going to tell us how it ought to be done right here in this 11th chapter, and we're going to have to humble ourselves before him and before it. Who hath first given to him 
and it shall be recompensed unto him again. What have we ever given to God that he owes us something in return? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. And that is how Romans 1 through 11 should affect us. That is how Romans 9 through 11 should affect us. And that is how Romans 11 should affect us. Because leading up in the last things taught, or Romans chapter 11, before this outburst by the apostle with an amen, drawing a, a, a division in the book of Romans, that the first 11 chapters are God's mercies toward us. The last verses of 31 and 32 are talking about the mercies of God toward his elect Jews and his elect Gentiles. And then 12 through 16 are, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. Because in 11 chapters we have heard all about the mercies of God. And it has risen to its climactic points here in this 11th chapter of God grafting us wild Gentiles in to His kingdom and church. And then the apostle can take up in those verses that everybody knows, I beseech you therefore. But remember, therefore tells us to look in the context for what has gone before that should motivate us. I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. Don't ever say what mercies of God. It's Romans 1 through 11, especially 11. Because the Roman church, like the churches that Paul served, were mostly Gentiles. And so we should give him a living sacrifice of our lives. A living sacrifice. And that will fit very well in the second assembly. Why do you live? Now, I do not want to bore you, nor do I want to make this confusing. Had God cast away all of the Jews? No, because Paul was a Jew. God hadn't cast away the people that were his elect, the ones that he foreknew. Verse 2. Didn't these listeners and these readers of the Apostle Paul's epistle already know the story of Elijah? That in Elijah's day, when he thought that he was all alone, and I'm sure Paul may have felt that sometimes he's all alone and I, th- I hope that once in a while you think that we may be pretty much alone because you don't want to know the truth. We are pretty much alone in some respects. The apostle brings up that example from 1 Kings 19 that Elijah thought he was all alone, but no. God had his 7,000 men that he had reserved to himself. Right. And that reservation was an election of grace. And even at this present time, Paul, writing right now, then in 50 or 50, 55, 60 A.D., there was an election just like that of Jews. And since it was of grace, it didn't involve works at all. All the Jewish ideas of works were cut out because work means there can't be grace involved and grace means there are no works involved. Works mean that you earn a wage. It's a, re- it's a reward. It's a return for something you have earned. Grace is demerited favor by someone And so I want you to understand those first six verses, but I need to lay a foundation for you to be able to not only understand this, but to be able to teach it a little bit and to be able to defend it. So let me review with you some principles of interpretation we need for Romans chapter 11. Scripture has no private interpretations. That is 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, knowing this first. No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. 
You, you had better not ever come up with something new, novel, separate, individual, or unique from the Word of God. You had better be able to find it elsewhere in the pages of Scripture. One of our minor points of Bible interpretation that the Lord has taught us is that we require two or three witnesses for every point of doctrine that we believe. We are not going to come up with something that only has one witness in the Word of God because on what basis can you claim that that is not a private interpretation? If you've only got one. Knowing this first. So the first thing we do is we are not going to come up with anything in Romans 11 that we can't find taught elsewhere in the Bible. So see, that's a, that's a constraining limitation on us as we interpret Romans 11. We're not going to come up with some mass conversion of the Jews because it's not taught elsewhere. Why would we come up with it? You say, but it says, and so all Israel. You're going to have to wait. But just remember that I've taught you in the past about those little adverbs, so and as. Right. And I'm going to teach you enough before I finish here that you'll, many of you will be able to handle most or all of the chapter, just by principles that start reining us in so that we end up where God wants us. If we just go into Romans chapter 11 and read the words for the sound that they have, it is amazing what men come up with coming out of this chapter. Many are the wild notions about a latter-day conversion of national Israel that are created from Romans chapter 11, but that's not what Romans chapter 11 is about. Romans chapter 11 is about... God putting us Gentiles into his church and that he has some blinded elect Jews that are out there that he's going to take care of because they're going to be saved as well by the same way that we're saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it says, and so all Israel shall be saved as, so as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. In verses 25 through 27, more on that in a moment. The Jews do not have anything held out for them in this chapter that is not held out for them in other places. Since Gentiles are in the olive tree, grafting Jews in again, or their fullness, is not a millennial kingdom. Because whatever you make the olive tree, the the Gentiles are in it. You know, the world want, the, the Christian world, the so-called dispensational, premillennial Christian world wants to have a millennial kingdom that's coming 1,000 years when the Jews are once again God's preeminent people and there's a wall of division put up again between the two of them. And some will go so far as to say there's going to be animal sacrifices and most of them will say there's going to be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem, a third temple. Solomon's, Zerubbabel's, and a third one, the millennial temple. But this is something that was existing in Paul's day. Because the Gentiles were already in it. So we just got, we, there's nothing held out here that we can't find taught elsewhere about the Jews. And we will not put up a middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles again, because the Bible teaches us very plainly in Galatians chapter 3 that being of faith and being baptized into Christ, we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, so that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So we're not going to go in there and come up with something like that that is not taught anywhere else in the New Testament, especially by Paul and all that he wrote. Paul rejected Jewish fables as contrary to the gospel and to be opposed by great ministerial zeal. That's in Titus chapter 1 where he assigned Titus on the island of Crete to make sure that he shut the mouths, especially of the circumcision, who were preaching Jewish fables. And Jewish fables come out of Romans 11 probably more than any other epistle of Paul, any chapter of Paul, and we're going to oppose those 
with all our might. Not just to oppose them because they're Jewish, but to oppose them because they're not taught there and they're not taught elsewhere by our brother Paul or the other apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no future regathering, salvation, revival, or program of any kind for biological or national Jews. Merely physical or national Jews have been totally and finally rejected by God. Remember in Galatians chapter 4, national Jews, national Jerusalem is compared to Hagar and her son Ishmael, and she is to be cast out. And it says so, and the same apostle wrote us those words. The tabernacle of David, which is described, and I had a Wednesday evening service for you maybe a year ago. The tabernacle of David is being rebuilt. It was being rebuilt in the days of James and the apostles in Acts chapter 15 is the conversion of Gentiles, not Jews. They say that Acts chapter 15 verses 15 through 17 are the most important dispensational verses in the Bible. Well, it teaches the opposite of what they wish it taught. Because Oh, I'll show you why. And you are going to remember some of these things because if you don't remember some of these things, someone will be able to take the future tense of Romans 11.26 and torture you with it. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion and deliverer, and shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. Those are all future tenses. Do not be bored with me right now. Do not be frustrated that we're not all the way to verse 20. I'll get to verse 20. But I want you to have established as to why we interpret it the way we do because there aren't very many people in the world that interpret it the way we do. That should comfort you. Most men don't even preach the Bible anymore. And so many of them had Jewish fables, though they didn't want to have Jewish fables in their idea of God putting up that distinction between the two again sometime in the future. Any present or future kingdom for the Jews, is absolutely spiritual and it already exists. That's why he would teach in Hebrews chapter 12 to the Jews. Remember the book is called Hebrews. Ye are come unto Mount Zion. And he goes on and describes what the Jews had come to. And he would say later in that chapter, for we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. How many kingdoms do you think there is after the one that Paul said in Hebrews 12 cannot be moved? How many more? There can't be any more. Why would he say in Hebrews 13, for here we have no continuing city? What does here mean? On earth? Where was Paul writing from? The Piedmont of the Carolinas? Or from the Middle East? Here we have no continuing city. This Jerusalem is not God's Jerusalem. Our Jerusalem is above. Galatians 4, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 13, the real seed of Abraham and the heirs of the promises are Christ by faith and baptism. Galatians 3 teaches us that extensively. We have to rightly divide the word of truth. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, the method of preaching is this. They read the word of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing the word of truth is the study efforts that ministers are supposed to make to rightly understand these things. Now, I have briefly mentioned some things to you, but look at it. In Romans 11 and verse 2, it says, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. But in verse 15 it says, For if the casting away of them, 
And these are ones that Paul could convert again. Are they cast away or are they not cast away? In verse 11, are they fallen or not fallen? Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. Well, that's obvious. They didn't fall. But rather through their fall. Are you ready for Romans 11? If you think I'm wasting time right now, I would like to reverse roles and come and sit in your office and ask you a few questions about this chapter. And I want us to be able to answer every verse in it. Lord, Thou knowest my heart in this matter. Did they fall or not? Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them... Do you have in your mind the, the picture of the thinker? Because there's thinking that's got to be done in Romans chapter 11 if we're going to rightly divide this thing and understand the verses that are here. Is it national or elect Israel? Is it national or elect Israel? Is it national or elect Israel? Do you know if you make that mistake in Romans 11 and verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved, what are you going to end up with? It's, it, the difference is just hor- tremendous. Proportion. We're going to remember that proportion should guide our interpretation so that we avoid extreme views of one generation of believing, extreme views of one generation of believing Jews trumping 2,000 years of them hating Christ. I find it amusing to think that Gentiles have been converted for 2,000 years to create jealousy on the part of the Jews, and yet no one converts for 2,000 years, and then all of a sudden one generation converts. Well, now how is that a consequence of anything? That's, that's out of proportion. So we're going to find proportion. There is proportion in Romans chapter 11. In these chapters, Israel equals Jews, elect or national. Gentiles equals Gentiles. Israel never equals Jews and Gentiles or elect Jews and Gentiles. Never. That confusion is just ridiculous to bring that into Romans 9 through 11 where the distinction between Israel and Gentiles is so obvious and repeated so many different times and in so many different ways. They are set in opposition to each other. This is very important. Somebody will get to verse 26 and so all Israel and they'll say, that's all elect Israel, Jews and Gentiles elected by God. No. Never does the apostle do that. That would be utter confusion, and he doesn't do it because he continues to maintain the separate, the separate natures and God's dealing with them right down through the end of this passage. Israel is in verse 25. Gentiles is in verse 25. And we're not supposed to mix them up. But I've seen it mixed up so many times before. Do I understand or do we understand that some places in the Bible, like Galatians 6.16, the word Israel might be used for God's elect made up of both Jews and Gentiles? Yes. But here, no. The key verse is verse 11. If you want a key to the chapter, you can write key, you can highlight it, you can put a star beside it. It's verse 11. Verse 11 is where you're gonna, where we will have to make some choices about how we're going to interpret the chapter. It's verse 11 that drives the interpretation of the vast bulk of Romans chapter 11. 
you can take a couple different courses leading to verse 11, but it's verse 11 where you've got to find the truth or you're going to end up off. Romans 11. I say then, have they stumbled? That pronoun they. Who is it? What is the antecedent for they in Romans 11 and verse 11? Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. We've got four pronouns there, and we need to find the antecedent. Is it Israel, or is it the rest? Is it the election, or is it the rest? In Back in verse 7. And that's what we're going to have to deal with, but I want to give you a key right now for those of you that want to study this chapter as we go forward between Sundays. 11 is the key. And you have to make big choices in verse 11. And we will. Much more could be said on verse 11. We will say it. Now, another point that's going to keep reining us in. Prophetic perspective. By those two words, which are not very useful because they're not in the Bible, does anybody? can anybody just raise their hand and let me know that you know what I meant by that? Prophetic perspective. Good. One, two, three, four. Oh, good. Ten. Uh, 20, 15, prophetic perspective. When a, an apostle quotes a prophet from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet is writing in a different verb tense than the apostle would write in if he were describing it from his viewpoint. We call it prophetic perspective because it's the prophet's perspective of something. Let me give you some examples, and I'm going to have to rely on you to believe this. Acts chapter 2 is an example. There are a number of these in the New Testament. I want to remind you of them. Acts 2, Peter is standing there with his fellow apostles, and they're speaking in 15 more language, 15 or more language groups. And the Jews that are there in Jerusalem ask, What meaneth this? Are these men full of new wine? And Peter explains what they were doing. Why all this speaking in tongues? But he goes on and he says in verse 17, and the charismatics use this the way that I'm now going to tell you about it. Jimmy Swaggart, this is his favorite verse. Oh, to, to take out his... what? Pulled on his tie. He's sitting at the piano. He pulls out his hanky. The sweat's just beading up off him. You know, he should have joined Jerry Lee Lewis, his cousin. But he's good on the piano. Jimmy was good on the piano. But while he is there preaching and teaching, they always or usually, in almost any sermon, get to this verse. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire, Vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness, and so on and so forth. Look at all the future tense verbs. And so Jimmy lays claim to this verse as that's what's happening under his ministry. 
That's what Benny Hinn does. They lay claim that what's happening under their ministry was prophesied here by Peter about them. But what is here in Acts chapter 2 is Joel prophesying about what was going to happen to Peter. Say, prove it. Okay. The first thing you would do is go back and read Joel 2. Verses 28 through 32. Then you would come to verse 16 where Peter says, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, now, you've heard this before, but do you know why I repeat it? So that you won't forget it. Are you going to need it in Romans 11, 25 and 26 and 27? Oh, yes, you are. Because we are going to take a position on those verses that just cuts out any revival of the Jews altogether. We're going to see only one Savior of the Jews and only one act of salvation on the cross of Calvary. I don't care that it's in the future tense in verses 26 and 27 because I know where the words are coming from. They're coming from Isaiah and Psalms. I hope you're... I don't want to make this confusing. It's as simple as reading 1 Kings 19 and knowing that God's always had a an elect remnant among His people, and it's always been by grace. But I have to teach you some of these things. Do you understand that what I just explained to you about prophetic perspective from Acts chapter 2, by missing that, there are millions of people that believe Benny Hinn and others like him, like Jimmy Swaggart, are the fulfillment of that passage. Do you know how greatly they err? This was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. And when it says before that great and notable day of the Lord come, in verse 20, that's the destruction of Jerusalem. Because Jesus had said, I will baptize you with the Holy Ghost, and I will baptize you with fire. Not the other way around. A baptism is not a little tongue of fire on their heads like it describes here. It is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and then the destruction of Jerusalem. It all happened in the first century. But they have pulled it forward because they see the word shall and they remember from third grade grammar that shall means future and Peter, Luke wrote it in Acts chapter 2, therefore, it must be me. It must be me. And they use it. And the people just sit there and say, wow, we are living in the, in the last days now. Well, the last days were the days of the apostles. Right. It's been the last days for 2,000 years. Right. Now, I know I'm off the subject a little bit of Romans 11, but do you know what? In Romans 11, I'm going to ask you to remember these things. And right now, I'm doing them so that when you read Romans 11 between this Sunday and next Sunday, you're going to, you're going to, oh, I see where he's leading us. I see. That's what I want you to do because the purpose of preaching is for you to understand, not for me just to fill the air with a bunch of noise. Prophetic perspective. Look at Acts 15. Very quickly, another one that deals with the Jews. Acts chapter 15. I've already mentioned this one. Here's James giving a prophecy, they would say. After this, I will return. Oh. After this, I will return. Acts 15, 16. This is the great council at Jerusalem. 
After this I will return, future tense, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. There's four verbs in that verse, and what tense are they all in? The future tense. And so all they can imagine is, the kingdom, like it was under David, is going to come back. A Jewish millennial kingdom with Jesus sitting on a literal throne of David on the sand of the nation of Israel at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. That's all they can see. It is a Jewish fable. Amos wrote those words. They were future tense to Amos. James was saying Amos's prophecy is being fulfilled right now with the conversion of Gentiles. Then he goes on, he adds a verse that's harder for them to deal with, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord who doeth all these things. God was going to elect a bunch of Gentiles and was going to bring them into the kingdom of David, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did so at his first coming and the ministry of John the Baptist and the apostles. Do you understand the prophetic perspective? From Amos's perspective, it was future tense. From James's perspective, it was happening right then. And when we get in Romans 11, 26 and 27, it's already happened on the cross of Calvary. One more, because it deals with the Jews. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Oh, I want you to read... I want you to read Hebrew, Romans 11 and, and get familiar with it so that I can't mislead you. It's your job to search these things to see if I'm telling you the truth. Right. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm taking my time because I want you to see some of the dilemmas that we're going to solve. We've just looked at a couple dilemmas that most people can't solve. When's the great and notable day of the Lord in Acts chapter 2? When's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? When's the blood and fire and vapor of smoke? When's all that wild stuff going to happen? We already know it's 2,000 years old. And somebody will say, but where was the blood, fire, and vapor of smoke? Can God use prophetic language once in a while and you won't fault Him too much for it? All that means is catastrophic, unbelievable things happening in the religious world. Right. Because if there was blood everywhere and fire everywhere and the moon stopped shining, would that be a cataclysmic, apocalyptic event in the natural realm? And so he just uses language like that to describe a total religious upheaval. All of a sudden, there are fishermen coming out of Galilee that don't even know how to speak clearly. They haven't been to school and they are declaring the works, the wonderful works of God in 15 different languages. And they were bold. Something had happened to Peter in just a few days. He's confronted by a massive crowd. Did he back down from that massive crowd like he backed down from a little maid at a fire? Not on your life. Why? Because he was full of the Holy Ghost. And I'm not talking about Jimmy or Benny. I'm talking about Peter. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There we go. There's going to be a new covenant made with the Jews. Do you know how blessed you are to understand what I'm showing you right now? 
God's going to make a new covenant with the Jews. Future tense. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For this is the covenant, verse 10, that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws in their mind, write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And all of a sudden, there goes the, there goes the mind. Because if you haven't been taught properly, there you go into a Jewish fable of that millennial kingdom all over again, that there's going to be a new covenant that's going to involve animal sacrifices for looking backward to the cross. How does offering a bullock in any direction help me understand the cross? You know, they'll say the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament look forward to the cross. Now I'm being very merciful to them right now. And the animal sacrifices of the millennial kingdom is looking back to the cross. It's all made up. Okay, verses 8 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 8. Who was the prophet? Jeremiah. And what was he looking forward to? The Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world and making a new covenant when He ripped that veil in half from top to bottom. Oh Lord, help us understand Your Word and every bit of it. That's prophetic perspective. That's three examples. Acts 2, Acts 15, and Hebrews chapter 8. If you were ever confronted by Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, it would be nice if you either had written there in the margin, Acts 2, Acts 15, and Hebrews 8, or if you had it on your mind where you could show them, why do you think that that's still future? That is, that is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. Let me give you some examples. That's how you teach the Word of God. That's how I'm teaching you. We'll never, we never want to forget as we go into Romans chapter 11 that eternal life and gospel salvation needs to be understood based on the rest of Scripture and what was taught in the preceding chapters. We are not going to get confused and, and, and alter how we believe eternal life is given to men. Eternal life is an unconditional gift of God. It's entirely by grace and gospel faith is not its condition, nor is gospel faith its instrument, nor its means. Eternal life is given in five phases, and they're to be kept distinct, especially the fourth phase of gospel salvation. Paul's already taught these facts to us. Romans 5, the two Adams. Romans 8, it is Christ that died. And there is that unbroken chain of God's purpose, God's foreknowledge, God's predestination, justification, calling, right down to glorification. Past tense, all of it. Because it's all done as far as the mind of God is concerned. That we cannot interrupt in any way. There's vessels of mercy, there's vessels of wrath. All of that has been taught already. We need to remember that there is gospel salvation. And this gospel salvation is a very important salvation, but it is not the bestowal of eternal life. It is not necessary for eternal life. It is the result of eternal life unless God has blinded a man or let him be under the, a ministry that doesn't save him altogether by a gospel salvation. Let me remind you, this is Tony the Evangelist. 1 Corinthians 15.2 By which also ye are saved. The gospel that I preached unto you, Paul wrote the Corinthians. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory. So there is a salvation. Okay, look at Romans 11. 
Verse 11. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come. Do you mean to tell me that Gentiles get eternal life because Jews disobey? So really our Savior are disobeying Jews. Let's have a prayer right now and thank God for disobeying Jews that got us saved. What salvation is it that came to the Gentiles? Right, the salvation of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 15, 2, and you want to remember these. And you might want to take that verse salvation and, and sneak in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, 1 Timothy 4, 16, James 5, 19 and 20, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. Because if a person forgets the resurrection of the dead in this hopeless world that we live in, and they try to live the Christian life, they would be of all men most miserable because they would have lost their hope. 1 Corinthians 15.2. 1 Timothy 4.16. Take heed unto thyself, Paul to Timothy, and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. Those two things. How many times have I said this to you? Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. That is a salvation dependent upon men being faithful to their ministerial calling. James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And the salvation in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 is salvation from the deceitful unrighteousness of the man of sin and the lying signs and wonders of the Roman Catholic Church. So that is a gospel salvation that delivers us from the lies of that false heretical religious system. We need to remember those things because we're going to find, look at verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, some of these Jews, if by any means I'll do anything I can, Paul said, to provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Well now, is that going to be Jews that God has cast away from eternal life that Paul's going to get eternal life for by all his means? Or does that have to be elect Jews? And if it's elect Jews, then what kind of salvation is it? And if it's gospel salvation, then what kind of Israelites, according to his flesh, are they? Do you follow what we have to do? Repeatedly in this chapter. There are many choices that we are going to make as we go through this chapter, and I'm preparing you for them right now. And every time we make a choice, it commits us to have to make other choices in this chapter. This is a tightly woven chapter, and that is why it has led to so much confusion, and that's why it is so difficult, because we have to so make our choices that we can consistently follow that choice through the whole chapter and not end up in heresy. By cheating ahead, we can tell the general idea of what's in this chapter. And you've already read it last night, so you can see that, the, that it is really God turning the gospel to the Gentiles and grafting us into his gospel kingdom and gospel church. The middle ten verses of the chapter 
from verses 11 down through 24 are describing that. And so you saw that. You can see that. That's true. And we're not going to change that. That God has moved the gospel church, His kingdom, the tabernacle of David. Use any words you want for it. They're all comparable synonyms in the New Testament. And Jesus, the Son of David, is reigning over us Gentiles. Because we've been grafted in to this long extended line of the patriarchs into Israel. And now it's us and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so blessed. And we ought to be blessed. But we ought to be humbled. And we ought not to be high-minded. But we should fear and be thankful for the goodness of God toward us. But we can also see in verses 25 through 28 that there is this segment of elect Israel that doesn't believe the gospel. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And it goes on to describe that all Israel is going to be saved. It's got to be elect Israel. And the salvation is by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Deliverer that's going to come out of Zion because those prophecies are from the Old Testament and they were fulfilled at the cross of Calvary. Verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. As far as eternal life, they're elect according to God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would always have a seed, and their seed would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. So we see that. We're not going to change that. We're going to end up there. But we've got to get there in a way where we are using the pronouns and the Israels and the salvation and the falling away and the casting and other verbs in this passage consistently. Pray for me. I want to give it to you in detail. And I in detail... I am laying a foundation this morning because this is what I have to do. And I'm sharing some of it with you because if you want to retain it, you've got to remember some of these things. And in their place, I will state these things again. Prophetic perspective is going to come up again in verses 26 and 27 when we get to those future tenses. But I'm telling you now because I'm hoping that while you read the chapter, it will be slowly sinking into its proper buckets in your own mind as to what is real, what salvation What casting away and so forth. There are a number of other documents on our website that uh, you might want to look at or or just remember who the real seed of Abraham is, what the real millennial kingdom is. It's the gospel kingdom that exists right now. I want to remind you about pronouns and their antecedents. And exceptions don't make rules, and that's all I have for this morning. Turn to Psalm 105 with me. Before you, before you turn there, just let me remind you, Romans 11.11 is the key to Romans 11. And there's four pronouns in Romans 11, and we've got to find the proper antecedent. Now there's two things mentioned in verse 7. Verses 8 through 10 are quotations of the Old Testament. There's two nouns in verse 7. The election and the rest. This is the key. They, there, and them in verse 11. Is it the election or the rest? You say, that's four verses removed. Well, that's how far you back you have to go to get a noun. You say, does that ever happen in the Bible? I thought the antecedent would be right next door. I wish the antecedent were right next door. But look at Psalm 105 with me. And some of you may remember Psalm 105. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want you to embarrass your brethren. But I hope that there might be some here that if I said to you, where is the best example in the Bible of a great distance between a pronoun and its antecedent, you would know what chapter it is. 
It's Psalm 105. And it's just something I have to remember. You might want to remember. And it's in all the work that we did on Bible hermeneutics a year or two ago. In Psalm 105 and verse 36, He smote also all the firstborn in their land. The chief of all their strength. There's two pronouns in verse 36. Where's the antecedent? An antecedent is a noun that identifies what the pronoun is standing for. Is it in verse 35? Or is there just another pronoun there? Is the antecedent in verse 34? Is it the locus? No? Okay, is the antecedent in 33? Is it in 32? 31? 30? Or is that just another pronoun? Is it in 28? Is it in 27? And 23. Egypt and Ham. It's in verses 23 and 27 for your pronoun in verse 36. Now look at verse 37. He brought them forth also with silver and gold. Now there's a pronoun, them. I'm glad you're enjoying it, young man. Is the pronoun them equivalent to, in verse 37, equivalent to the pronoun in 36? (laughs) Why would the Lord do this to us? Because He's wonderful Father in heaven. Does a good father once in a while bring home little puzzles for their children? Little brain teasers? Well, the Lord gives us a few. Is the pronoun in verse 37 equal to the pronoun in verse 36? Well, well, if there was 10 verses between the pronoun in verse 36 and its antecedent in 27 and 23, how in the world am I supposed to know that there's been a change in what's under consideration in verse 37? It's Israel from verse 23. It's only 14 verses away. You know, how do we know? Because of what it says. Just... I'm not dealing with you as with children. How do we know the them in verse 37 is not Egypt and Ham? Because we know the story. We know the context. And my brethren, I am telling you secrets to Romans chapter 11. We are going to have to take pronouns there and see what it says about them. And we are going to have to say, I don't care how far this is removed from its antecedent. It must be the election or the rest. That's what we're going to have to do. If you want a difficult one to mull on over lunch, it's verse 28. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against His word. I'll give you three options just to help your thinking. Is it the darkness that didn't rebel against God's word? Is it Moses and Aaron that didn't rebel against God's word but threatened darkness against Pharaoh who had told them he would kill them? Or is it Egypt that didn't rebel against darkness even though darkness came quite a ways before Egypt let them go? It's just for you to mull over. The last point I want to make is when we go into Romans chapter 11 and we come out of there with some unconverted elect in verses 25 through 28, I want to establish this right off, right before we get into this chapter. Exceptions, exceptions do not make rules. 
we are not going to end up by seeing God having a specific purpose with a specific generation to get the gospel turned to the Gentiles, meaning that there is in all generations and in all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, this vast multitude of unconverted elect. In Romans 11, it's for a very specific purpose and it's a very specific people. We're not going to make a general rule out of it. Because there are some that have found this truth here and maybe some other examples in the Bible, and they run to an excess of ending up with all these unconverted elect. The general rule is, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That is the general rule, and we believe that. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That is the evidence of eternal life. If you add to your faith virtue and all the other, the six other things, there in 2 Peter chapter 1, you can make your calling and election sure. That is the general rule. God is the one responsible for the exceptions, and in Romans chapter 11, the exceptions are rather narrow. And they're not for us to presume on. So I'm not going to use Romans chapter 11 to tell you that most everyone in the world is an unconverted elect. And the stone kissers in Mecca are just blind Arabians that have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. We're going to find them in the rest that God has blinded them and not elected them and cast them off. And so we want to be careful. We have no more right to presume on unconverted elect than a thief on the cross getting saved at the last minute of his life. We don't make presumptions like that. And so I leave you with those principles that are going to guide our interpretation. Now looking at Romans chapter 11, I hope that you can understand the basic rundown of the first six verses, but we're going to come back and go through the first six verses, but not today. But I hope that it's simple enough that there is an issue that Paul has stated in chapter 9, elaborated on a little bit toward the end of 9 and in chapter 10, and in Romans chapter 11, he's going to explain it more thoroughly. What in the world is happening to Israel? And when he, when he says that Isaiah was bold in the last two verses of chapter 10, he's going to be pretty bold in, Revel, in Romans chapter 11 because he's just going to say, just like the 7,000 Elijah's day, God had his elect then, even so in the very same way he has his elect now. And the others are blinded. And he's bowed down their back, and he's made what should have been for their welfare their curse. And he's going to deal with the banking obsession with the Romans in in verses 8 through 10, because it's going to describe their money-changing tables of what should have been for their welfare turned up to be their destruction because they loved financial gain and dominance in this world rather than the Messiah that God sent them. There's much more to say. We want to come away from this chapter thanking God for election, that He chose us to be to be reserved unto Him like the 7,000 Elijah's day, that He also sent us the gospel and did not blind our eyes, but opened our eyes, opened our heart like the heart of Lydia to attend unto the things that are taught in the Bible. Right. And that we cannot boast about the Jews because we're wild olive branch graft in we can be taken off easily and the natural branches put back 
We want to humble ourselves before the Lord. We want to remember that His Word is written in such a way that it will capture and snare people and break them if they don't approach it right. I've taken a whole bunch of time this morning to show you a framework of how we go into Romans chapter 11. If you're disappointed that I'm taking too long, come and tell me that you have it all figured out from front end to back end, and I'll have a few questions for you. But let's rejoice today. We give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Election is so personal. In Romans 11 and verse 1, hath God cast away His people. God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Notice what Paul does to prove the doctrine of election. Himself. That there there were elect Jews. Himself. Does God have elect on planet earth today? How do you know? Because you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you make it that personal? Because you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you love His Word. Because you are willing to humble yourself before this Word. The Apostle Paul was willing to preach it anywhere. And so he appealed to himself. Obviously God hasn't cast away all the Jews because look at me. Be very careful with that because the Apostle Paul had a life that you could look at. God had shown abundant mercy in his life. And he thanks God over there in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a, this faithful saying is worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And I am set forth as a pattern for them that should believe on Him to life everlasting after me because God could save me. He can save anyone. And Paul appeals to himself. I want you to understand that election is personal. Right. It's personal. Those 7,000 men, God knew the 7,000 men. God knows every one of them. God knew Paul. Do you know that you're God's elect? Paul knew about the election of the Thessalonians. Let's make sure of our election. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. May the Lord bless this introduction to Romans 11. Amen. Amen.